Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Our gospel reading is a very, very powerful one. Um, and all of our readings today are amazing and uh, really make us, and when you read them, I want you to go home and read them again and think about in that passage, in all of those passages, who is the protagonist in the relationship? Um, is this a two-way street with God, or is this a one-way street in which God is accomplishing something in all of us, uh, namely his purposes and his salvation? And so we come to our gospel reading today and we see it, what it, what it is to have God as the protagonist of the relationship, what it actually means, uh, and why it's good news, and uh, why this isn't a two-way street, but what happens when we begin to think it's a two-way street. Now, in order to get what's going on in the gospel, let me give you uh, the setting really quick. So the disciples are in this city called Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northern part of what we would call Palestine today, in uh, the region that used to belong to Syria, called, or technically still does, uh, called the Golan Heights. And Caesarea Philippi was this vacation place for Gentiles, like stationed in uh, uh, monotheistic Israel. Uh, You know, it was, if you wanted a little slice of the pagan homeland, this was the city you would go to. It was dedicated to Caesar Augustus by Philip II, the son of King Herod. And from the days, the early days of the Greek Empire, the entire land had been uh, dedicated to the god Pan. So uh, there were little gods everywhere, and, uh, and uh, so every god was welcome. This was a celebrate diversity moment, you know what I mean? Uh, coexist stickers were everywhere. And uh, there were little temples here and there, and large temples dedicated to Caesar. And in my mind's eye, when I am thinking about this gospel reading and the disciples walking uncomfortably, I mean, they are all monotheistic, devout Jews, walking with Jesus amongst all of these different idols. They're feeling incredibly uncomfortable. And Jesus can see that they're feeling incredibly uncomfortable. They're sweating under the collar. They're like, what the hell are we doing here, Jesus? You know, and he's like, well, this is a perfect place for a teaching moment. And Jesus here in Caesarea Philippi drops two big questions on the disciples. He drops two big questions in the midst of pagan, hotbed of paganism. And the first one is the question of popular opinion. Who do people say that I am? And they answer him. The first question, they're like, well, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life again. Others say you're Elijah, because in the Jewish tradition, Elijah always precedes the Messiah. Still, others thought that Jesus was a prophet in line with the great prophets of the Old Testament. So that's what they answer. And then the second question that he drops at them, and this is the most crucial question ever posed because it's the difference between, as, uh, as Paul writes about Abraham and as we read about Abraham, uh, it is the difference between faith, which is credited to us as righteousness, and unbelief. It is the difference between life and death. And there's no in-between here. 
It's not like this answer. The answer to this question is not like horseshoes. You can kind of be close, you know. So he asked them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter delivers the answer. He's like, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, which in Peter's mind most certainly means this revolutionary king who was going to like usher in a holy war and re- uh, reestablish the king of David. And it's interesting because if you read back private when, when Peter gives this answer, Jesus doesn't say, oh, awesome, great decision for me. He says, blessed are you, Peter Barjona, for uh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So once again, who's the protagonist in our relationship with God? So Jesus then, he begins to teach them in the midst of all of these pagan idols. Don't forget that. He begins to teach them that the Messiah must suffer many things be rejected by religious authorities, be killed. Ugh. And after three days, rise again. None of those pagan gods are rejected by any authorities. You know what I mean? And all those pagan gods, it's a two-way street. You know, you do your part, and maybe we'll do ours. Well, this also, what Jesus is saying, doesn't fit the profile of what the Christ should be according to devout monotheistic Jews. And Peter, what he does is he takes Jesus off to the side, and he's like, what are you talking about? It says he begins to rebuke him. The Greek word there is like the same word used when a, when a grown-up corrects a small, disobedient child. Can you imagine that? Pulling Jesus off to the side and being like, let me tell you something. That is not right, and you're embarrassing us all. Are you kidding That's not how messiahs are supposed to act. And at this moment, I have this image of Jesus looking out at all the other disciples, and they're shaking their head in agreement with Peter. Jesus, that's crazy. That's crazy. And Jesus, then, what does he do? He rebukes Peter. And the most, I mean, it is harsh. Get behind me. Not just get behind me, Peter. But literally, get behind me, Satan. Peter, the confessor, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, in one moment becomes, like, I mean, within the span of like five verses, all of a sudden becomes the mouthpiece of the devil himself. Boy. Talk about an illustration, though, of the Christian life. You know what I mean? It's not, a, it's not an illustration of like constantly getting better, good people making their way up a ladder. You know, I'm on space 37 this morning, hope to be at 50. No, it is, the Christian life is Peter's. The spokesman getting it right and getting it wrong all at the same time. The Christian life is like Peter's. It's the great confession in one breath and the great denial in the next. And the truth is, is that you and I are no different. I love how St. Paul puts it. He puts it in a couple chapters later from our reading today. He says, when I do good, evil lies close at hand. Peter the confessor and Peter the denier are one in the same. Just as we are both sinner and saint, one in the same. 
You know, one moment right here I'm preaching and teaching you to trust God, and then the next, I am a total control freak. Just ask any of these people downstairs. Ask Camel. I'm a complete and total control freak. And I want the outcome. I want to know the outcome uh, because, you know, I don't trust all the time. A crucified Jesus, a crucified God, are you kidding? I mean, all of my worldly senses say anything but in control when I see a crucified Jesus. However, by faith, you and I know that that is exactly where we want to be, in his crucified embrace, because that is the safest place in the world to be. And that, my friends, is what is credited to us as righteous. However, the question becomes, what's actually at the root of our denials? You know what I mean? What's at the root of our denials of Jesus? In our reading, Jesus gives his disciples, including all of us, the answer. If any person would come after me, let them deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. I mean, this is the complete opposite of the way the culture tells us things work spiritually. You know what I mean? We think, you know, oh, I found the right parking spot. Oh, I found the right, you know, they got my dry cleaning done right in the right moment. Oh, I got, found a $20 bill on the corner. The universe must be for me. You know what I mean? It's like, and where the gospel is the exact opposite. The gospel is, is that God will be found in your loss. God is found in those places where you are weak. God is found speaking to you in those places where you can't do it yourself. This is what it's at. The root of our denial comes from what I call our self-salvation projects. This is ultimately Peter's problem, and it's our problem. We're fine with the Messiah. We just want that Messiah minus the suffering. I'm fine with the Messiah, but I want that Messiah minus the dying and rising for our salvation. Totally cool with the Messiah, just one without a cross. See, philosophers have historically broken down human existence and meaning into three primary categories. You have work, you got recreation, and then you have religion. And all three in our hands become means by which we believe I can, we can save ourselves. You know, I can save my life by immersing myself in my work. Then I'll be successful. Then I'll have titles. Then I'll get the recognition that I needed. I will be fulfilled. And I will be happy. I can save my life by immersing myself in recreation. And I'll be rested. And I'll understand fine wines. And, uh, you know, and I'll be completely at peace as I venture between the beach and my city house. You know, as I venture between the mountains and the city. 
and every religion. I mean, we are in the height. Lent has been completely co-opted by the peddlers of religion and those who want to tame God. I mean, Lent has been completely turned into a self-salvation project. You know? It's terrible. Lent is all about ways you can take up your cross. And your cross is something kind of like pathetic, like denying chocolate for 40 days. As if God's like, damn, that's awesome. You know what I mean? I mean, that's crazy talk. I didn't shave for 40 days. Well done. Thank you. You know, for me. So, but, um, you know, but we've turned Lent into a self-salvation project. And that somehow, like, you know, this is all going to, like, God will notice me. And no matter how pious it actually is, when you become the protagonist of the relationship with God, you're actually stepping into the realm of the old Adam. And look, God, I'm just like you. And it's to deny Christ. Everyone in the first century, everyone listening to what Jesus was saying in Caesarea Philippi, take up their cross and follow me, knew that had so much more to do than just not having chocolate for a couple of days. I mean, that was literally the worst way to die. It was a shameful way to die. And when he calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, no one in the first century would have ever thought, dang, that's a great idea. Because they knew and understood, as the 20th century theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood, when Christ calls a person, he bids him to come and die. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean martyrdom, although it eventually might. And it does for some of our brothers and sisters who live in Islamic lands. But this is my second point. What it does mean to deny, your, deny yourself and take up your cross, what it does mean is give up. To take up your cross and follow Jesus ultimately means that the only way to live is not saving yourself but to deny yourself, to die in Jesus. To die, lose yourself as you follow Jesus to his cross and his death. It means to understand that God, in terms of your relationship with him, is doing it all and accomplishing it all for you. And in terms of your relationship with God, you are along for the ride. And it's not that Jesus is your co-pilot. It's not that you're in the passenger seat. But actually, in regards to your relationship with God, on one level, you may be just in the trunk. And he's taking you somewhere that is far more glorious than you ever would have figured out on a map quest, in a heavenly sense. What this means is that, and even to take up your cross, your cross can't even save you. This is how it gets pitched sometimes and twisted in our head. Your cross can't even save you. Only Christ's cross can save you. Your death can't save you, only his will. And this is what it is to deny, is to find that all, everything now is in him. In him we live and move and have our being completely and totally. And therefore, what this means is, is that real life has nothing to do with blessing in human terms. And actually, sometimes real life has everything to do with loss. 
It flips everything on its head. Jesus on the cross rejected, suffering, dying, proclaims to us that God is not in our gaining, but he's in the losing, so that God can truly free you up to serve your neighbor where he has placed you, and that he may truly rule your human experience because it's never been about you and your glory in the first place. That's a tough pill for New Yorkers. But it's good news. Because ultimately what that means is freedom. Since you've lost your life, what else is there to lose? Now, you can confess your sins to God and your neighbor. And have you ever noticed those things that you've built up in your head, those things, those hard things that you've got to do? And as my friend John Zoll said on this great podcast called The Zoll Brothers, he was like, you know, I've always built these things up, and then when I've actually confronted them, I realize that they are much smaller than I could have imagined. I'm the one who made them the boogeyman under the bed. And that's because I was doing the doing. Since you've lost your life in Jesus already, what else is there to lose? Now you can confess your sins to God and your neighbor, knowing that you've already been totally forgiven. It means freedom. It means that you can rest in the fact that you don't need to impress anyone, because the one person, God himself, who matters, has called you his child. And the God of the universe knows you and says, you can call me Father, and I've got your back. And you can take on whatever suffering comes your way because he has taken on suffering first. You can face the disappointments of life with patience and courage because he bore it for you first. And ultimately, as you die, you can say with your last breath, with a sure and certain hope in the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is Lord because he's risen from the grave first. And this is my third point. To take up your cross, to lose your life, is ultimately to gain your life. It is to, as we say around here, enjoy your forgiveness. Because we're freed from ourselves. We've been forgiven before the law. And you and I now can live boldly and confidently in the cross of Christ. So you who are baptized, you can come to the supper of the Lamb, and you who are baptized can feast on the bread that is his body. As we lose our life once again today, as we lose our life once again today, we know with courage and great grace, and most importantly by faith, that we've already been found in Jesus' life. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.